Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Genesis 4, 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thank you, Sarah. Well, good morning again and welcome, and again, happy Mother's Day. Uh, I believe we have a gift for you mothers on your way out today, so just want to uh, let you know that in advance. So I don't think this is true at Crosspoint, but, and, and I don't know if you know this, but historically, I'm kind of in church circles, Mother's Day is known as one of the highest attended uh, church days of the year. Uh, Father's Day is kind of a different story for a different day, but the reason that Mother's Day, uh, we think, is, is one of the most highest attended days is because on Mother's Day, uh, moms generally get what they want, Right? Uh, often they, they should, right? And, and so it seems that moms often want to come to worship with their family. They want to hear an encouraging word, uh, an encouraging sermon uh, alongside their family. And so I tell you that because I'm not sure if I'm going to help with that a whole lot today. Uh, at Crosspoint, guys, you know, we preach through books of the Bible, and sometimes by preaching through books of the Bible, it takes us to some uncomfortable texts, and sometimes those texts line up on some uncomfortable days. And so today on Mother's Day, we're actually going to be talking about the world's first dysfunctional family. <laughs> we're going to be talking about the story of Cain and Abel. In all seriousness, it's a story about the first family, and it is a story about the first dysfunctional family. We're going to pick up where we left off last week as uh, Adam and Eve were actually removed from the garden and the cherubim were there with the swords and they were guarding Adam and Eve from returning into the garden. And we know that Adam and Eve were moving into an entirely new world that was filled with sin. Something I want to say about that is this, is that when the gates of Eden closed behind Adam and Eve, uh, they didn't cease to be who they were created to be in one sense. They were still image bearers of God. Right? The, the sin was tragic. It was then. It is now. We know that. We're going to see the effects of that. But the effects of the fall did not mean that Adam and Eve stopped being human. They remained image bearers of God. But as they left the garden, they entered into a new and a very different fallen world. 
Right? Everything had changed. The animals that they used to commune with, uh, they were friendly to them and they were friendly to, like, they're hostile now. Uh, assuming that there were plants, edible plants everywhere for them to eat, as now there were thorns, there were thistles that were growing around those. It was harder to get. And among all of this, there was, there was suffering. There was death. Right? So although their image was marred, they were in this new environment, uh, they were still who they were, uh, but it was a shocking new world. But in the middle of all this, uh, they started a family. Right? They started a new family. Uh, and I say started a family because if you recall, Adam and Eve were actually not born. Adam was created by God outside of the garden. He was brought into the garden. God breathed life into him. He was given dominion over the garden. Eve was brought in. She was brought to life, brought alongside him. It's not good for man to be alone. They were given this, this, this marriage, this charge to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Right? They weren't born. So in the story of Cain and Abel, we actually see the first babies born. We're going to see a lot of firsts, but we're going to see the first babies born. We don't know how much time passed from the time that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden until the time these babies were born. But Genesis 4 does record that Eve gave birth to two healthy sons, Cain and Abel. And that she and Adam, along with these two healthy sons, they became a family. Just as God had intended before the fall, but now they're a family among the fall. We're going to see that due to this fall, terrible changes are going to happen. All right, so uh, you may have some familiarity with this story. Right? You, you may know and think that stories of Cain, that Cain and Abel is a story about two brothers and sibling rivalry, right? and it is. It's about that. It's about jealousy. It's about murder. It's all those things. As I mentioned, it's a dysfunctional family, right? but it's more than that, too. The, the story of Cain and Abel is a story about two brothers, but at the heart of it, it's a story about worship. Cain and Abel provide us with two representations of two kinds of people in a setting of worship. Cain provides us with a man-centered view, and Abel provides us with a God-centered view. So, guys, with this in mind, although there's a lot of details left out of the text, I think you're going to find that within the story of Cain and Abel, we're going to find at least a few spiritual truths that are extremely relevant for us today. For example, this story shows us what worshipful giving looks like. It also shows us some dangers to avoid as well as some truths to practice. And most importantly, it points us to the hope that we have in Christ. So for those of you that um, are, are like stories, you like narratives, you like seeing how things are broken down, uh, this story is basically broken down into three sections. Verses 1 through 7 uh, introduce the two brothers, and it records, the, records in contrast, I should say, the acts of their worship. The second section, verses 8 through 16, record the murder of Abel and also record the Lord's condemnation of Cain. And then for lack of time, we're not going to be able to cover this, but verses 17 through 26 focus on Cain's life after Abel. I encourage you guys to spend some time there this week as follow-up, maybe talk about that with your community group. So uh, I just want to begin by kind of walking through this passage step-by-step, explaining some things as we go. So let's begin by reading uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 again. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So as you can see, guys, this story starts off hopeful, right? As I mentioned, there's there's a family here. It's I mean, life outside the, the garden is hard. But common grace prevailed, this family is born, and on the heels of their exclusion from the garden, 
this, ad, this family just kind of gives, gives birth, gives life, right? So you may notice in verse 1, on the very first Mother's Day, actually, that Eve says this. She says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Uh, just some interesting language that she uses there, right? Many scholars think that Eve actually thought that her son Cain might have been the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And that, that's maybe why she said it that way. I've gotten uh, a man with the help of the Lord, right? She, she may have thought that Cain was the redeemer that was promised to come. So she was excited. On this first Mother's Day, she's excited, right? And interestingly, as we're going to see uh, a little bit later in the text, she may have told Cain this, right? She may have told Cain time and time again, in fact, that he was the promised redeemer to come. It could have, just saying could have, it's an assumption, could have influenced his hyperinflated view of himself, which we're going to see come to light in a little bit. Then verse 2 says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Some actually think because of this that Cain and Abel are twins, Uh, but with no record of time, actually, we cannot be certain of that. Verse verse 2, it also says that Abel was a keeper of sheep, meaning he was a shepherd. Uh, it says that Cain became a worker of the ground, meaning he was a farmer. Uh, is this is a story of contrast. A lot of folks think that maybe uh, there's, a, there's a contrast here of good and evil in these two professions. Because actually there's, no, there's nothing to support that. Uh, if you remember back in the garden, God's command to Adam was, was to work the ground, uh, to have dominion over all things, the dominion mandate, right? So we know that work was not sinful. Uh, work here is not sinful. It's in the midst of sin. Right? They're going to experience uh, the consequences of sin as they farm and as they keep sheep. But these two acts are certainly noble. They're not sinful in and of themselves. So things are starting off well. Right? It's a hopeful beginning. But things don't take long in the story to change. Right? This hopeful beginning begins to unravel in the next verse. Uh, in verses 3 through 5, Cain is not only going to reveal that he's not the promised redeemer. He's not the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15. But he's actually going to reveal that he's the opposite So let's look in verse 3 through 5. Read along with me in your Bibles or your device. Um, Says this And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. His face fell. So his face falling, it's another way of saying that Cain was depressed. Right? He was saddened by this. So here we do see a contrast. Right? Cain and Abel are providing us with two representations of two kinds of people in a setting of worship. Abel's gift is received and respected. So the Lord had regard. But Cain's gift is quickly dismissed. And so it begs the question, why? Right? Why did God accept Abel's offering and reject Cain? Guys, this is where we're going to start to see the character and the faith of Cain and Abel revealed in their acts of worship. Okay, there's, again, there's not a lot of detail given here. And so by looking at the full counsel of God's word, drawing in what we know about Cain and Abel from the New Testament, also making some assumptions from the text, uh, we can begin to piece some things together here. But something very important to piece together here in answering this question is this is the law of Moses had not been given yet, right? The sacrificial law and that system had not been given yet. So the context of this chapter, it suggests that God must have, and I repeat, must have previously explained to Adam and his family how to enter his presence with proper sacrifice. 
It suggests that. So I, I want to tell you this for two reasons. One, before the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect, unhindered fellowship with God, right? We saw that in the weeks past, right? But now, in, in order for them to commune with him, an offering for sin must be made. That's the pattern we're going to see from here on. And so God must have shown them how this was to be done. The second reason I say this is because later in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews actually says that Abel's offering was acceptable. Acceptable. So again, this indicates that God had indeed instructed them on how this offering was to be done. So in summary, what this means is Adam and his family, they not only knew and understood the reason that God wanted them to bring the offerings to him, but they knew and understood how to do it through sacrifice. So if we look back in our text, we can see that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, at first glance, this seems like a good thing, right? I mean, after all, Cain was a farmer, and it only makes sense that he would bring something from his farm, right? Abel, on the other hand, brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So again, at first glance, this also makes sense. Abel's a shepherd, so it makes sense that he would, of course, bring an offering from, uh, from his, his herd, right? But, but I want you to look at the wording closely in, in verse, verse 4. Actually, I'm going to put this on the screen for you on verse 4 so you can see this. If you look closely, you're going to notice that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brought the firstborn of his sheep and included their fat. Cain brought an offering and Abel brought the first fruits. Starting to catch the pattern here. So, also, guys, something very important to note here about Abel's offering is that the fat of the lamb that he brought, it makes it clear that the sheep that he brought, they were actually sacrificed. They were actually sacrificed. They shed their blood and they died. So as I mentioned, God must have presented to Adam and Eve and therefore his sons how this offering was to be done. And so here we see that by faith, Abel not only obeyed God in how he presented his offering, but he also brought the very best of his flock and he sacrificed them. Okay, he brought his first fruits, he sacrificed them. So if any of us are tempted to ever think that Abel was perfect in this story, I think this actually tells us that he wasn't. Abel knew that he was not perfect. He knew that he was a sinner and he knew that his offering was a sacrifice for sin. The Lord knew his heart and his offering was accepted. The Lord knew his heart and his offering was accepted. So I think the story of Cain and Abel shows us that genuine faith leads to genuine worship. Genuine faith leads to genuine worship. In obedience, Abel not only brought the firstborn of his flock, the very best, but he went above and beyond and he brought the fat portions as well. His genuine faith produced genuine worship. The first fruits. The first fruits. So the author of Hebrews actually points to Abel as an example for us to imitate and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, this should be on the screen, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts, and through faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what this means is that his faith motivated his worship, and his faith motivated his offering, and his faith counted him as righteous before God. As this is a spiritual truth for us, right? That genuine faith produces genuine worship. It's extremely relevant for us today. In this story, 
since the context is in worship, is in regard to worship, and it's in regard to their offerings, uh, I also thought I'd make a couple of observations that I think are relevant for us today in regard to our offerings, right? So, so let's just, let's start by looking at this, that worshipful giving is a reflection of the heart. Right? As New Testament followers of Christ, we, we know and understand what we've been given, right? We, we know and understand that um, what Christ has done for us, and, and so we respond with, with a heart of worship, not out of compulsion, not under compulsion, not out of duty. We understand as Abel did that we're sinners and a sacrifice must be made. But the difference for us is we can look back on the sacrifice that Jesus made. He laid down his life as the ultimate sacrifice for us. So our giving is in response to what we see that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. He's given us new lives in Christ. So our genuine faith produces genuine worshipful giving. New Testament speaks into this as well. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says that each one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, that passage is kind of clear as mud to a lot of people, right? I mean, people look at this and they say, man, I get that. We're supposed to give cheerfully, not under compulsion, but why didn't Paul just spell out how much we're supposed to give? That way I could just do it. Right? I could just do that. And of course he doesn't. He says to decide in your heart. Because I think he says this because worshipful giving is a reflection of the heart. Right? If he put down an amount to give, we'd, we'd give that, we'd check it off, and we'd think by in our own power that we had accomplished something. Right? But what worshipful giving reminds us of is that of what Christ accomplished for us. And in response, we give worshipfully. We give cheerfully, not out of duty. We give with delight. Right? Because we see that giving is a reflection of the heart. Jesus, in fact, said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in a culture that often worships treasures above God, I think this is a good reminder for us. I'd say that how we give of our time, our talent, and our treasures often reveals and reflects our heart. How we give of our time, our talent, and our treasure reveals what we worship. I've got some questions just to ask you this morning. Are you structuring your time so that you have the margin to serve God and others. You structure your time that way. Are you discovering and deploying your talents and your gifting so that you can serve God and others? Are you stewarding God's resources so that you can give of the first fruits of your labor? And most importantly, is your genuine faith producing this desire in you? Right? Not under a legalistic view, but a genuine faith. Is that producing this desire in you? As I, as I read this 2 Corinthians passage this week, I wondered if Paul had Abel in mind when he wrote it. I don't know that. Again, another assumption I'm making, but he could have, right? Because this was at the heart of Abel. Abel's genuine faith produced worshipful giving, right? Again, a lot of details are left out of this text. So the fact that he gives of his first fruit, I, I think, show us this. I think it says a lot. I think it safely leads us to assume that Abel's gift was cheerful. It was generous. Uh, I think it safely leads us to assume that he had set apart for God a certain portion before selecting his own portion. He'd set that apart for God. I think this safely leads us to assume that he didn't stint in his giving. He was generous. He was generous. 
I thought I knew what generosity looked like up until about seven or eight years ago. And I don't know why that time frame marks this for me, but I was just thinking about just generosity and thinking about what I might communicate to you this morning. I just thought I'd share this with you, that I thought I knew what this looked like until about seven or eight years ago. And the Lord began to bring some people into my life that I had the chance to witness and be a part of some of the generous giving that I saw them uh, participate in. I got to be on the receiving end of some of it, which was a blessing for me and my family. But most, the biggest blessing has just been watching what generosity can truly look like. Right? My eyes have been open to this. I've seen people who not only give to their local church, but just pray and ask God for opportunities to give above and beyond. And guys, in amazing ways. They pray this. God, give us an opportunity. Show us an opportunity to be a conduit of your blessing in our lives. And I'm not just talking about wealthy people, right? I'm talking about all kinds of people. I've seen people that aren't wealthy according to Rockwall standards or the world standards that that budget this way, right? That actually have a line item in their budget. Yes, for their normal giving and all their offerings, but I also see a line item that says just generosity or spirit-led giving. And so as the Lord leads, they they have a way, they have planned to respond to that. I just, I share that with you because I just love that. As a pastor, I've gotten to see that, and it just brings a smile to my face. It just brings a smile to my face. Hopefully, it does yours as well. Hopefully, that's a little challenging to you. Right? Maybe you want to consider. Are, are you organizing your, are you stewarding God's resources in such a way that you could do that? All right, so the, the second observation that I want to make in this is that worshipful giving is an act of dependency on God. Worshipful giving is dependency on God. Again, in the context of our monetary offerings, what this means is by giving of our first fruits, we understand that God is not dependent on his creation, but his creation is dependent on him, meaning us. We are dependent on him. Worshipful giving is an act of dependency, right? When we give of our first fruits, what we are doing is declaring our trust in God, who's the creator, he's the giver of all things, and we're saying, God, I trust you. You've given this to me to steward, and I want to I give of the first fruits. And as I do so, I'm declaring my dependency. I'm declaring on my trust in you that you'll continue to provide for me in the future. It's a declaration of trust. Guys, maybe this speaks to some of you today. I know it does me. If I'm, if I'm honest with you this morning, I always try to be. As I can tell you, there have been times that I have wanted to hold back my tithes and offerings, my giving. I haven't given cheerfully. I've done it more out of duty. I've wanted to store up treasures on earth. I've wanted to stockpile my first fruits because, you know, just in case if there's ever a need. Right? And that, in those moments, I'm not dependent on God. I'm starting to shift my affection towards me as now I'm the provider, right? That's what I'm doing. And so I'll tell you this. Although giving for Elizabeth and I is a rhythm of our life, it's still something we're tempted to rob from. It is. I, I say that because it, we've been tempted so many times. Uh, we've looked at our budget. Things don't always make sense, right? We start to look at what we could rob from Peter to pay Paul and stuff, and we start looking at that line item that we've set aside of God's resources. We go, eh, if we just pulled from that, then maybe we could do this. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? And we start to justify that. And, guys, that's something we've been tempted with. If I'm completely honest with you, I can tell you there's been times we've done that. We've made that decision to go ahead and follow through because that was a good thing, right? But I'll tell you this, we've always regretted it. It's always, it hasn't brought joy. It's come with regret because in those moments, again, it's not about a number. It's about a cheerful heart. It's about duty over delight, 
delight over duty. But in those moments, what we've done is we've shifted from a dependency on God to a dependency on ourselves. We've looked at that budget and we go, hey, this doesn't make sense. We're not going to trust in the Lord and his ways. We're going to trust in ourselves and our ways. We're going to worship the way we want to worship instead of the way that God has instructed us to worship through our giving. And so we've always regretted that. But I'll tell you this, guys, we've never regretted giving according to God's will. And I say that because worshipful giving is a reflection of the heart. In those times where we've placed our dependency on God, and even when things don't make sense, we've gone, God, we trust you. We want to place our dependency on you. We've never regretted it. And we've always experienced the joy of God following through and, and coming through for us in the way that he says he will. And you know what? We would have missed out on that had we taken matters into our own hands. All right? So worshipful giving is a reflection of the heart. Worshipful giving is an act of dependency on God. This was the heart of Abel. His giving was God-centered and it was worshipful. And as for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. No regard. This brings us to some of the truths in the story uh, that I think teach us uh, in regard to dangers to avoid. Right? There are some dangers to avoid in this story. The first danger is this, to avoid self-righteousness. Right, just to be clear, what I mean by that, biblically speaking, self-righteousness is the idea that we can somehow generate within ourselves a righteousness that will be acceptable to God through our own person or work. Somehow we can do it. Through our own person or work, somehow we can generate this offering in our own self-righteousness. Guys, to be clear, self-righteousness is misplaced worship. It's misplaced worship. It's misplaced worship because it places oneself at the center instead of God. And we see this in Cain. This was the heart of Cain. Cain did not bring his first fruits. He did not bring a sacrificial offering, but instead he brought an offering of his choice. An offering of the fruit of the ground. He brought a self-righteous offering. I mentioned earlier that maybe, I don't know, that Cain thought he was the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. I don't know. Maybe his mama told him he was so special so many times when he was a baby, he thought that he was more special with God. It's a little Mother's Day joke. Just kidding. I don't know. But in all seriousness, Cain gives us the first example of human religion. Okay? And Cain, in fact, Cain gives us the first example of false religion. Cain thought he had figured out a way to please God in his own way by his own works. In no way did Cain acknowledge his sin. In no way did Cain acknowledge a sacrifice necessary for sin. He brought what he had produced out of the ground. He brought an offering. He brought some leftovers. He may have brought an offering, but it was a disobedient offering. It was a man-centered offering, and therefore his offering had no regard. This was the reflection of his heart. And his self-righteousness, he trusted that he'd found another way. That's what self-righteousness does. It creates false religion. It creates a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It's Proverbs 14, 12. Cain's heart wasn't right with God. And as Cain dismissed the Lord, the Lord dismissed his offering. But, here's what's interesting. The Lord didn't yet dismiss Cain. We saw last week that God pursues. We're about to see this again. In spite of his sin, in spite of his anger, God still pursued him. Just as it was with his mom and dad, with Adam and Eve, when they took of the fruit of the garden, God came to the center. Remember we walked into Adam and Eve? Where are you? He pursued them. It's not the center to God. It was God coming to the center. And God pursued with great concern. God encouraged Cain to assess himself. In Genesis 4, 6, and 7, he says this. The Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Again, God pursues Cain, and he promises him this. He says, hey, if you do well, then you'll be accepted. You'll be lifted up, meaning his countenance would be accepted because he would have repented. He would have been restored. But if Cain should resist, then sin would be crouching at his door. Guys, what a great reminder, another great reminder of how God pursues us. I mean, think about your life before you placed faith in Christ. In Christ, God pursued you. He reached down. He gave you an opportunity to confess. He gave you an opportunity to repent and to be fully restored. His offer was right there in front of you. And for those who are believing and trusting today, by God's grace, you reached out and you took it. Right? You took it. The Bible teaches, however, that although his offer is on the table for all, right, he wishes that no man should perish, that there will be those who perish. And Cain is such. God lovingly gave Cain another chance to do what was right. Do what was right to place his trust in God, and to offer the sacrifice that he required, but he didn't do it. God revealed his kindness. He urged Cain to do the right thing. He warned him, hey, sin is crouching at your door. It's about to totally take over your life. But in his self-righteousness, again, he thought he'd figured out another way. I got this. I got this. Cain didn't admit he was wrong, and he didn't repent of his sin. And as so many of us also fall into this trap of thinking that we can earn our own way to God and our own self-righteousness, I think this is a very real danger, guys, we need to consider. We need to avoid this. In the way of Cain, as Jude 11 speaks of, we need to learn what not to do. We need to learn to avoid self-righteousness. The second danger I think this story teaches us to avoid is the danger of jealousy. Okay, we're going to move into the second section of the story here where we see the sin of Cain take over and his jealousy revealed. Right, here's what's going to happen. Cain's going to commit the first premeditated murder. Right? Again, fun to talk about on Mother's Day, right? Genesis 4, verses 8 through 16. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I think it's interesting that the New Testament pictures Satan as a lion that's crouching. He's ready to pounce, right? Ironically, God warned Cain that sin would be crouching at his door, and Cain crouched. He pounced on his brother. In a jealous fit of rage, Cain killed his brother. So realistically, let me say this, to teach on the topic of jealousy would be a sermon of its own, right? But I just want to draw out, I think, two Dangers, two real dangers from this story that I think are beneficial for us to take today. Number one is jealousy leads to hostility. In this story, we see that Cain was jealous of Abel because of his righteousness with God. This jealousy grew into hostility, and rather than get right with God, Cain was lured, he was enticed by a sinful desire, and that desire, when it conceived, gave birth to action, which brought forth death. Some of you guys may recall, that's James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It brought forth death. That's what it produced in him. So if you think about it, due to his jealousy, Cain probably murdered his brothers many times before he actually committed the act. It's been said, we'll never do anything physically. We haven't rehearsed mentally, right? 
So Cain probably had rehearsed this mentally. His jealousy had led to this act. Cain made his choice. He chose not to do what was right. The sin was crouching at his door, and it pounced on him, and it turned him into a killer. Jealousy leads to hostility. I think that's the truth we can draw out of this text. The second truth is this. Jealousy resents the happiness of others. I think it's clear in this text. Cain's jealousy led to hostility because Cain's jealousy resented the righteousness of his brother. How do I know this? Well, we flipped in the New Testament again to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. It's going to be on the screen. It says this. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Jealousy resents the righteousness of others. It resents the happiness of others. Two ways of saying it. Friends, I think we can learn from this. In this passage, John is speaking to the local church. And he's telling us, hey, don't be like Cain. You might be thinking, I'm not like Cain. I'm not a murderer. I hope not. Right? Let me ask you some questions. Do you delight in other people's success? Do you delight in other people's happiness? Or do you find yourself jealous and therefore resentful? This hides itself in subtle ways, guys. When you hear or see on social media that someone else just landed a new or better job than you, what do you think? Maybe they got a new promotion. What do you think? What about when you hear or see that someone just bought a new or better house or they got something that you don't have? Are you rejoicing for them or are you focusing on the fact that you don't have it? What about when you see someone else's health and nutrition plan along with the pictures they posted on the internet, right? Oh, is that really right? I, wonder what, I, don't, I don't want to know what she's doing to really look like that. Moms, what about when you hear or see other moms that mention or post achievements that you don't think you could ever achieve in your stage of life? Talk about relevant in our culture. I talk to so many moms that they, they look at social media and they go, I just feel like such a failure. Right? I mean, I look around, I see these moms doing all these amazing things, and I'm doing good just to keep my kids alive during the day. Like, how is she doing that? I don't want to know what she's doing to do that. I don't want to know what she's sacrificing to do that. And you know what? In fact, I bet she's not doing a lot of things I'm doing to do that. See how that shifts? There's a jealousy that begins to take root. We're no longer celebrating someone else's success, perceived, perceived success even but we're beginning to allow jealousy to take root. What about when other moms post family pictures of their family's achievements and their kids, right? Moms love to brag on kids. Keep bragging on your kids, right? Celebrate those and other moms bragging on their kids. Celebrate those moments, right? If you look at those moments, you go, man, her kids look perfect. I'm just trying to keep my, my unruly kid alive, right? Look at that kid. He's doing awesome. Right? Celebrate that. Don't get jealous in that and take root in that. I'm trying to make it a little relevant to moms today, if you can't tell, right? So, do you rejoice for them, or in your jealousy and resentment, do you explain it away and say things like this? Like, man, I don't want to know what she did to get that job. I don't want to know what he did to get that job, to get where he's at. Are we celebrating, or are we jealous? Came across a quote I want to share with you this week. Uh, I was telling somebody this week that a lot of times as preachers, we share quotes when somebody else can say something better and faster than we can because it's very efficient. And so I I came across one I want to share with you this this morning. Uh, John Piper says this about the human heart. He says, the human heart that is falling short in some way is so easily angered by people who are making progress where we're failing. We often get resentful and we don't want to be around them. We don't want to be around these able types. 
because they show up in our bad habits. So we have, they show us up in our bad habits. So we avoid them because they make us feel bad or we criticize them in some area that they seem to be falling short. The best way to nullify someone's goodness is to criticize their badness. This is what Cain did, and this is what John is warning us against in the church. So we've taken this Old, Old Testament passage, we've drawn out some truths, and here's the New Testament going, hey, this applies to us as well. See how that happened? In summary, guys, let me say this. Jealousy is really just another form of self-righteousness. It really is. It's, it's, failure, it's failing to recognize God is the giver of all things. This, this action of Cain rising up against his brother is pretty important if you really dive down into that story. A lot of commentators highlight on that because he tried to rise up over his brother in his jealousy, to bow over the top of him, to look down on him. And in doing so, he was trying to rise up above God's providence, God's plan, right? Even for Abel. He's saying, God, you don't know what's right here. I know what's right here. Abel's offering, it's no good. Mine's offering. Mine's better. It's, it's good. Right, so I put myself in a position of God. I've risen up over my brother, risen up over you, God. That was the heart of Cain in this moment. Okay? So in contrast to dangers avoid, to avoid, uh, I mentioned there's some truths to practice. And, and uh, I want to cover these as quickly as I can for time's sake. I'm going to walk through four of them. But these are truths to practice. Okay? The first is confession and repentance. Confession and repentance should mark the life of every believer. And we actually find this in the story by looking at the opposite of what Cain did. Just in case you're asking, hey, where do you see that, Ryan? It's the opposite of what Cain did. Again, Jude 11 says, don't be like Cain. Okay? So had Cain confessed and repented of his sin in the moment that God confronted him, he would have been restored to God. Even after murdering his own brother, forgiveness was available to him. But the first thing we see him do is try to cover up his sin. Right? He lied to God outright. He denied any knowledge of his brother's whereabouts. And as we'll see, Cain was only concerned with his punishment, not his character. He was concerned about getting caught, not his sin. And guys, this can be a danger for us as well. As my friend Samantha Jolliker often says, there's a big difference in a heartfelt confession to God and confessing just because you're afraid you're going to get caught. Right? Didn't give Samantha a heads up on that one, smiling at her. Because all sin is first and foremost against God. All right, we've spoken to this often at Crosspoint, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this today. Uh, but I'll say this. If confession and repentance is not a part of your daily walk as a believer, pay attention to this. This is the truth that we can draw out of this story, right? We should not be the way of Cain. When you find yourself in sin, and we all do, the first and best thing to do is confess it and repent of it. And then you know what? The next time you do it, repeat. Confess, repent, repeat pretty good recipe for us as believers. Secondly, is brotherly love. It's another truth we see here. This story shows us that we are to exhibit brotherly love. We are our brother's keeper. Again, we, look at, we find this by looking at the opposite of what Cain did. When the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? God didn't need this information, just like he didn't need it when he asked Adam, hey, where are you in the garden? Right? God knew what happened. But what this reveals, however, is that Cain was no longer near the body. Again, it means that Cain had run. He'd fled the scene of the crime. He carried on his self-righteousness. He fled the scene and he lied to cover it up. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Right? He's, he's rejecting the implication that he should be responsible for his brother in any way. It's a sad piece of the story. Because we can't separate our relationship with God 
and our relationship with our brothers and our sisters. Both our natural brothers and sisters and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are our brother's keeper and we can see some very relevant lessons from this story. Right? The Bible teaches in the New Testament that we're not to commit acts of violence against one another. This of course includes murder, but it also includes jealousy, outbursts of anger, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder, all kinds of things. Now second, we're to exhibit brotherly love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're to do so with a tender heart and a humble mind, the Bible tells us. In this way, we exhibit brotherly love. Thirdly, this story shows us the consequence of sin. We talked about this last week as well, as Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. So again, I'm not going to dive into this and spend much time, but uh, this story shows us the consequence of sin. The Lord is gracious and just here. He is. He always is. He, he could have zapped Cain on the spot for what he did, and he would have certainly been justified in doing so. But instead, as a consequence, he's removed from his family. Last week, we saw Adam and Eve removed from the garden. Here, Cain's removed from his family. This is not prescriptive. It doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. But consequence to sin is always the case. And we know that we can be forgiven of sin. We can be forgiven of all uh, unrighteousness. But there's still a consequence of sin. I think this story reveals that. It's consistent with Scripture. As you read on in your own personal study this week in verses 17 through 26, you'll see this in greater detail, right? As you'll see the, the focus of the life on Cain after he killed his brother and as he extended, continued to extend the sin of this family into the world, which is where we're going to start picking things up in the weeks to come. The last and most important thing this story points us to is the hope that we have in Christ. But thankfully, guys, after all of this dysfunction that we've seen in this story, as New Testament readers as we can see God's providence at work, we can see in this story that it points us to Christ. Remember, in regard to Abel's murder, God said this in Genesis 4.10. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I want you to hear what the author of Hebrews has to say about this, about Abel's death. He says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, I've already used this verse once, I'm going to use it again. It says, by faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and, although his, uh, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the question that I've got to ask after reading that verse is, what is Abel saying through his faith? How is he still speaking? He's dead. Again, the author of Hebrews sheds light on this. Chapter 12, verse 24 says this, And to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. As an observation that I had this past week as I was studying this passage, kind of blew my mind, shared this with Kyle Lance this past Thursday, but I've already talked about it a couple times. Eve probably thought that Cain was the seed of the woman, the promised redeemer in Genesis 3.15. What we find out, and what we find out from Scripture in 1 John 3.12 is he was actually the seed of the serpent. He was of the evil one, the passage tells us. Cain killed Abel, but there's still good news. There's still good news. Abel and his death, whose blood cries out from the ground, because it's a foreshadowing of Jesus, whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Again, another quote. A guy's going to say this just in a shorter and better way than I probably can. A guy named John Bloom this week came across it says this, For though Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin, Jesus' innocent blood cried out for mercy for sinners. Abel's blood exposed Cain and his wretchedness, 
Jesus' blood covers our wretchedness and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't say it better than 1 John 1 9, but that's a piece of 1 John 1 9. As all of Scripture, including the story of Cain and Abel, points us to the hope that we have in Christ. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for uh, narratives such as Cain and Abel that show us so many spiritual truths that we may otherwise be blind to. I'm thankful for your scripture, your New Testament scripture that points back to Old Testament scriptures, history, and how we see scripture confirms scripture. And yeah, we see that all of your word, your full counsel of your word is your truth. It's all one seamless story that's pointing to you. And I'm thankful for the reminder that we see of that in this story of Cain and Abel. God, help us this morning to reflect upon these truths of, of heartfelt worship and dependency on you. Help us to avoid and be aware of self-righteousness in our own life as it exposes our, itself and, and shows up as jealousy. God, help us to uh, keep in mind uh, our confession, our repentance. Keep in mind that we are our brother's keeper. Help us to keep in mind the consequences of sin. God, always understanding that there's forgiveness in sin, but there's consequences as well. God, most importantly, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen.